This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, Ms. Smith, uh, Mr. Konindak, uh, thank you for joining us today to discuss the Biden administration's efforts to address the international spread of COVID-19. Gail Smith is the coordinator for global COVID response and health security at the U.S. Department of State. She is currently on leave from the One Campaign, where she has served as the president and CEO since March of 2017. Prior to the One Campaign, uh, she served in the Obama administration as special assistant to the president and senior director for development and democracy at the National Security Council and as administrator of the U.S. Agency for International Development. Jeremy Konindike is the executive director of the USAID COVID-19 Task Force. He served four years in the Obama administration as the director of USAID's Office of U.S. Foreign Disaster Assistance, where he led the U.S. government's response to international disasters, including the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Before rejoining the federal government, Mr. Konindike was a senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development. So thank you both for your willingness uh, to serve once again our nation. We appreciate it very much. The last time this committee held a COVID hearing, June of 2020, there were nearly 8 million cases of COVID-19 around the globe. More than 2 million of those cases were in the United States. And at that time, the disease had claimed more than 115,000 lives in this country alone. Nearly a year later, this deadly disease has killed more than 3 million people. Nearly 600,000 of them are fellow Americans. In addition to the devastating personal toll, the pandemic has had a catastrophic economic impact. According to the International Monetary Fund, the global economy contracted by negative 3.5% in 2020 alone, a severe shock acutely and adversely affecting youth, the poor, and those working in the informal economy. The U.S. economy shrank an almost equal amount, negative 3.4% in 2020. I'm pleased that the Biden administration has plans that are working. As vaccinations roll out here in the United States, cities and schools are reopening. The American Rescue Plan, which we passed in March, put another $1,400 in the pockets of working people, keeps the unemployed afloat, and helps millions of Americans avoid eviction and foreclosure. It invests billions to help re schools reopen safely and provide direct aid to state and local governments across America, reeling from the enormous course of responding to this public health crisis. However, as this pandemic has put into stark reality for every American, what happens in the rest of the world directly impacts us here at home. And in parts of the rest of the world, the pandemic continues to rage. In India, Brazil, and other countries, COVID-19 cases are surging, taking hundreds of thousands of lives in the past few weeks and months alone. Less than 10% of the population in India has received one vaccine dose. And the regional implications of India's outbreak for Nepal, Bangladesh, and Pakistan are alarming. The entire continent of Africa has only administered 2% of all the vaccine doses administered globally so far. COVAX, the organization created to provide equal access to COVID-19 vaccinations worldwide, has shipped over 53 million vaccines to 121 participant nations. But this is a drop in the ocean compared to the approximately 1.2 billion administered around the world. 
and a far cry from the amount needed to provide herd immunity in those countries. In short, the global fight against the virus is far from over. But we must rise to the challenge because the longer the virus circulates, the greater the chance that more virulent and vaccine-resistant variants will develop, continuing to place American lives at risk. I believe that fight involves looking forward as well as understanding how we got here. The American people and the world deserve answers about the origins of the pandemic. The Strategic Competition Act of 2021, which this committee passed by a vote of 21 to 1, directs the Director of National Intelligence to provide a report with those answers, not to engage in a blame game, but because we must understand the true origins of COVID-19 to ensure that we are taking appropriate steps to provide to, to uh, avoid future pandemics. Additionally, Senator, Senator Collins and I introduced the Bipartisan National Coronavirus Commission Act with a companion bill in the House. Our bill would create a nonpartisan commission modeled on the 9-11 Commission to examine the emergence and spread of COVID-19 in the United States and abroad. The commission would examine the United States' domestic and international response to COVID-19 from all angles, including international public health surveillance, early warning systems, intergovernmental coordination, foreign aid, and global supply chains. The Commission would provide recommendations to Congress to prevent future pandemics, protect the health and economic security of the United States, and ultimately reestablish the United States as the global leader in public health. And let's be clear, we'll need resources to do all of this. Those of us who supported the international spending, included in the American Rescue Plan and beyond that, uh, understand the importance of it. Ranking Member Rich and I have begun the process of developing bipartisan legislation aimed at strengthening efforts to end the COVID-19 pandemic, ensuring we are better prepared to face future pandemic threats and helping countries around the world recover from this one. In light of all of that, I convene today's hearing to address three critical questions. How can we meaningfully slow and ultimately stop the spread of this pandemic once and for all, and what resources are needed to do so? Two, what steps do we need to take to support and enhance recovery around the world? And three, what must we do to ensure that the United States and our partners and allies are best prepared to prevent, detect, and respond to future pandemics? So once again, let me welcome our witnesses. We look forward to hearing from each of them about the Biden administration's strategy to lead international efforts on an improved pandemic response. With that, let me recognize the, the ranking member, Senator Risch. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I recently looked back uh, at my notes from the two hearings we held last June on the U.S. international response to COVID-19. Though a lot has changed, the United States finally appears to be turning a corner. Too much remains the same. Americans have grown weary and are anxious to get back to life as normal. We have to get ahead of variants that may be even more dangerous than the, or the original strain that shuttered schools and businesses, isolated families, and upended the global economy. Science tells us the best way to do that is to tackle vaccine hesitancy here at home while accelerating efforts to expand access to vaccines overseas. One need look no further than India to see why it is so important to tackle both of these uh, imperatives at the same time and now. Congress has provided more than $16 billion in aid to try to contain this pandemic overseas, $4 billion of which is slated to go uh, for the COVAX Partnership for Vaccines. I'm eager to hear how these resources are being prioritized, coordinated, implemented, and, importantly, overseen. Uh, 
The administration also recently announced that 60 million uh, doses of surplus U.S. vaccines will be donated overseas. I'm hoping to hear from uh, Ms. Smith today, the coordinator for global COVID response and and health security and the lead on U.S. vaccine diplomacy, how these resources will be prioritized, who will get what, when, and how, and how will all of this U.S. assistance be effectively branded. I also hope to hear about the anticipated outcomes of the upcoming G20 Summit on Global Health on May 21st and the World Health Organization Assembly on May 24th. Finally, I hope we all learn more about how the administration is incorporating pandemic preparedness into its current response. I've consistently argued that the COVID-19 pandemic is not the first, and it certainly won't be the last pandemic to threaten the American people and indeed the world. We have to get serious about preparedness and prevention so we can get ahead of the next outbreak before it becomes a global pandemic. We need a reformed uh, World Health Organization that is fit for the purpose. We need to figure out how to hold countries accountable for failing to uphold commitments to international health regulations, including by actively suppressing global health data. We need uh, better early warning systems so we can identify threats in real time as they emerge. And we need a fire department capable of responding to those warnings so they can put out the flames before they spin out of control. The very recently released uh, study that uh, WHO uh, commissioned uh, really underscores how important that uh, fire department is uh, to getting on top of this quickly. I was pleased to see the president's first national security memorandum included a commitment to better coordinated U.S. global health security and diplomacy overseas, a prominent leadership role to be played by the Department of State, and an interest in establishing a financing mechanism to help committed partners close the gaps in health security uh, that threaten us all. These are concrete ideas grounded in nearly two decades of experience in combating another global health threat, the HIV-AIDS pandemic. Those of us who proposed uh, and included these same propositions in legislation that has been offered are pleased that the president has embraced and followed suit on uh, those proposals. As noted just now by the chairman, he and I are working on uh, further legislation uh, to move the ball forward. With the administration having embraced the proposals that uh, all of us seem to be on board with, this uh, should be a constructive positive and successful enterprise. At the same time, I'm disappointed to hear that the administration is advocating to unilaterally surrender U.S. intellectual property to China. The American free enterprise system created the vaccines that are saving lives and restoring freedom around the world. All the U.S. government had to do was ease regulation and get out of the way. The challenges now relate to logistics, not innovation. I understand this is a work in progress. I'm going to watch it carefully. I believe that uh, going overboard on this will undermine the U.S. companies, and that's deeply uh, unfortunate. I look forward to a robust discussion today about these issues, and uh, yield the most of my time. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Risch. Uh, we'll start uh, with our testimony of our witnesses. Uh, your full statements will be included in the record. I ask you to summarize in around five minutes or so so we can have a conversation, and we'll start uh, with uh, Ms. Smith. <clears throat> Could you put your microphone on? Uh, Very 
Hello? Yep. Okay, maybe you can bring it a little closer to you. That might be yep. helpful. Thank you. Um, let me start with a round of thanks. Uh, we are enormously grateful for your support and interest in a robust international response led by the United States, and we are extremely grateful for the resources that have been provided through the American Rescue Plan. Uh, those resources have enabled a number of things already, and if I may just anecdotally mention one of them, uh, <clears throat> we now have, through that previous funding, sufficient contributions to COVAX, the international mechanism to provide vaccines around the world. In its first year, COVAX suffered a lot of difficulties, including that it had donor pledges but didn't necessarily have cash on hand. We all know you cannot conclude a deal with a pledge. Uh, it also suffered from the fact that currently vaccines are not being exported from India for reasons we can understand. The U.S. contribution has enabled COVAX to get back on the market, so I'm happy to start out by reporting that they've recently uh, concluded deals with Moderna and Novavax, and so there are more vaccines moving into the system. But they're not enough, as you have rightly pointed out. And if I may briefly just explain the framework which we are using for the foundation of our global response. The first plank is obviously on vaccines, increasing supply and access globally, because as we all know, the safety of the American people and indeed people everywhere depends on our ability to defeat a virus that knows no borders. The second is to reduce mortality, but also transmission. We know from our own experience in this country, even before we were able to avail ourselves of vaccine, that preventing transmission is key as is strengthening the underlying health systems upon which we and all countries depend. The third is to deal with the acute shocks, economic and otherwise, that are the result of this pandemic. Fourth, bolstering the economic and other systematic impacts. We have seen entire sectors collapse in many countries around the world. And finally, to work on building the international architecture for global health security that we know that we need for the future because we know we will see more threats like this. And let me briefly just point to the four elements of that. The first is strengthening and modernizing existing institutions. Is that aimed at me? Yeah. That's just background. <laughs> Got it. Strengthening and modernizing... Never did understand <laughs> It's just testing me to see how I do with this. Guy. It's aimed at us, not at you. So. Yeah. Oh, I, sorry. Uh, do what we do, ignore it. <laughs> strengthening and modernizing existing institutions. And I use that term modernizing deliberately because I think we've got to make sure they are fit for purpose for the future. The second is strengthening existing norms, also looking at what new norms may be needed for the world to handle these kinds of global health threats and ensuring compliance with those existing norms. The third is to ensure adequate and sustainable financing. And I'm encouraged by your references to your look at what is going to be needed for global health security. It's going to be critical that that funding be predictable and sustainable because we can't afford false starts where countries get part of the way to having the capacity to prevent, detect, and respond, but not all the way there. And the fourth pillar on global health security is transparency, accountability, and oversight. One of the things about a virus is that we are able, through science, to track it, to monitor it, to watch it, 
to measure it, but we can only do that if we've got the transparency that affords us that insight. We need the accountability and oversight because only when and if all countries comport to the sets of regulations, norms, and standards that we have and that we need to build upon can we deny the virus the quarter it so commonly exploits in order to replicate, mutate, and then reinfect. So that's the broad brush on our strategy. We would be happy to take more questions on all of the things we're doing. India has obviously been added to this, given the surge there. Uh, my colleague can speak more to that. Uh, and we thank you again for your attention and your interest. Thank you, uh, Mr. Konaindike. All right. Uh, Thank you, Chairman Menendez. Thank you, Ranking Member Risch. It is a privilege to appear before the committee again uh, to, to testify on coronavirus. Um, I'm here today as the, uh, the Executive Director of USAID's COVID-19 work. And I want to begin, as, um, as my, my colleague Gail did, by just thanking Congress for the generosity shown through the American Rescue Plan in affording resources to, to battle this pandemic globally. Uh, I have, I have led numerous disaster and crisis responses for the U.S. government in my career. Uh, I led USAID's work on Ebola in West Africa in 2014, which to that point was the most complex thing I'd ever dealt with in my career. I think this goes well beyond it. This is really like nothing I think we've ever seen. It is an overlapping humanitarian crisis, health crisis, and development crisis. Um, any, any one of those on its own would be a historic crisis. The three of them overlapping together are, um, are truly beyond anything I think that any of us in our careers have, have, have seen the precedent for. Um, and so fighting that is going to take every resource and every capability that the U.S. government can muster. President Biden is committed to the goal of ending this pandemic globally, just as he is working to end it at home. And I am grateful to the committee uh, for continuing to focus attention and effort and support uh, as, we, as we take that fight forward. The pandemic has shown it can overwhelm even the most developed health systems, uh, as, we've, you know, as we've seen in parts of our own country at times, as we've seen in other countries. Uh, and, and so the, the devastation can be even more, effect, more, um, uh, more severe when it affects countries that do not have the sort of health capabilities that we do. And we're seeing that right now with the rising cases in India and, and growing across South Asia. And uh, we're very, very seized with that at the moment. Uh, meeting this unprecedented challenge is going to take a, a great deal uh, of American leadership. Fortunately, we have a, a good track record on that. The U.S. has a history of fighting pandemics and, and outbreaks, whether that's Ebola, malaria, tuberculosis, Zika, or, of course, the decades-long fight against HIV. Since the outbreak began, USAID has provided more than $3 billion uh, thanks to the generosity of Congress and the American people. And we are continuing to program more funding every week to fight this pandemic around the world. Um, as Gail has mentioned, through USAID, uh, the U.S. has provided an initial contribution of $2 billion to, uh, to Gavi for the COVAX Equitable Vaccine Initiative. We will be providing another $2 billion uh, in the um, uh, over the coming year, as Gavi has more contracts that they need to lock down for uh, providing more vaccines, um, but we are also, you know, we are we are also recognizing this is not just about vaccines. Um, there's a uh, a colleague of mine from Resolve to Save Lives, uh, uh, an NGO partner that we engage with, 
who has said we need to not be we need to make sure we're not being blinded by the light at the end of the tunnel. So if vaccines are the light at the end of the tunnel, there's a long dark tunnel we need to get through until then. And so um, as as Gail has laid out in our strategy, vaccines are the long term play or the medium term play. But this virus, this virus can do a lot of damage in the medium in the near term while those vaccines come online at scale. So we also need to push hard on promoting and supporting good country policies, risk awareness, supporting health systems to reduce mortality in the immediate term while we work as hard as we can to scale up vaccine access. We are making, uh, we are making significant uh, headway on that within the, within the U.S. government um, through the work at AID and state, but also with partners at DOD and uh, the Department of Health and Human Services and the CDC. We are mounting a whole-of-government effort to defeat this pandemic globally. And I think you saw, you saw a, a picture of that and what we've done in India over the past couple of weeks. USAID assistants flying on DOD airframes uh, coordinated with the HHS health attache and the USAID mission in Delhi, supported and backstopped by CDC technical assistance, uh, both in, in Atlanta and in, and in Delhi. So it truly is a whole team effort that we're mounting here, and we are continuing to expand that in the months ahead. Uh, we look forward to working closely with the committee and with the Congress as we as we take this initiative forward. We know it's going to it's going to take every part of what America can do to bring this pandemic to a close. The president is committed to that. We are committed to that, and um, we will we will do what we can uh, on the on the assistance front and on the policy front. Uh, and uh, I think. The, the diplomatic front, which Gail is leading, and other forms of engagement, technical support with countries are going to be very important in that, too. We can do this. It's going to be a big lift, um, but we are ready, and we uh, appreciate the, the strong support from Congress and look forward to discussing it with you further. Thank you. Well, thank you both. Well, we'll start a series of five-minute rounds. Uh, let me start uh, by saying uh, for our fellow citizens across the country who may be wondering why we're so focused on this internationally, uh, as long as there is uh, COVID anywhere, there can be COVID everywhere. We cannot hermetically seal off the United States of America. There are viruses, understand, no borders, no oceans, no walls, uh, nothing. And so it is in our own national interest and security, as well as being a global citizen, uh, to uh, meet this challenge. When we look at uh, the uh, numbers, uh, 3 million confirmed deaths around the world, but researchers and some reports recently, a published study claims that the number of deaths are over closer to 7 million, of which 900,000 alone would be here in the United States. So uh, what I'd like, and I, I listen to your testimony, but work with me to get a better understanding. Give me a clear articulation of what is needed, what major obstacles are there, and how the administration is planning to lead efforts to get the job done to move towards uh, an ultimate end of the pandemic, but in the interim, uh, dramatically uh, changing the course of events. Um, let me point to three aspects of that. The first and most important thing we need is international coordination and leadership, and I believe the United States is able and willing to provide that. If you look at the fragmentation that characterized the first year of this pandemic, uh, it quite frankly gave advantage to the virus. So we are reaching out to countries all over the world, to our key allies and partners, to make sure that what we do as we move out uh, more robustly is a coordinated response that therefore can get to some scale. 
I think that the second is, as Jeremy rightly pointed out, vaccines are absolutely critical. We're going to have to work on that throughout uh, this response. But we're also going to have to respond to those, in those areas where we can actually prevent and prepare. Let me say a couple of things on vaccines uh, and what we are doing on that front. Number one, uh, we are now the largest donor to COVAX. Again, thanks to the generosity of Congress. We are using our contribution to leverage and encourage other countries to increase their own contributions so that we've got adequate burden sharing, but also we get to the scale we need. We're also looking at issues of supply and manufacture. We need more vaccines. That's why <clears throat> uh, the United States, our development finance corporation, under the rubric of the Quad, countries that we work with, uh, has embarked on a deal for a new, for an additional company in India to increase production of vaccines and is looking at other places around the world where the injection of DFC capital can result in fairly prompt increases in production. Uh, there is also sharing. Uh, it was rightly referenced to the president's decision to share AstraZeneca doses. Uh, and over the coming days, you'll hear more about that in our efforts uh, to look at how to share more doses. Um, that's going to be critical to the solution as well. So we've got a multi-pronged effort on vaccines. The second is that second part of our strategy on reducing transmission strengthening the health systems that are going to be needed and reducing mortality. There's a lot can be done, and I will turn to my colleague to say more about that, but quite frankly, to prepare for what we know is coming as we try to ramp up the supply of vaccines. If you think about India and the subregion, there are other parts of the world that we are monitoring where we could likely see surges. So how do we deliver the assistance that we now have on hand to strengthen those health systems and position uh, for that? So those are the three key areas I would point to. Mm -hmm. um, let me, do you want to add anything? Or is that all right with you, sir? If you have something to add, yeah, then I have another question. Sure. Um, yeah, I think, I think Gail has covered sort of the broad strokes. The, the, in the near term, it really is imperative that countries not take their foot off, um, not take their foot off the gas in terms of the, the distancing and masking and all the other behavioral measures that are needed to, to, to slow transmission. I think one of, the, one of the factors in India seems to have been that some of those measures were, were somewhat relaxed and that, that um, you know, large, large gatherings, particularly some large religious festivals, were allowed to continue and that provided uh, opportunities for the virus to spread at, at, at large scale. Clearly, the variants are part of that as well. The variants are uh, multiple variants are now proving to be more transmissible, and I think that just underscores the risk and the danger we face in the year ahead. So a part of this, you know, part of this is that what we can do with our assistance, and we're going to provide testing support. We're going to support uh, contact tracing and other public health measures in countries. Um, part of this, too, is countries need to really maintain the rigor of their the stringency of their policies to slow and prevent transmission mm -hmm. until they have sufficient cover vaccination coverage. And that's, in much of the developing world, not likely to happen for another year okay. to year and a half, even under a best-case scenario. Let, let me turn to uh, another question. Um, I, I heard you say, Ms. Smith, that the U.S. is able and willing uh, to help lead this international response. And my question is, who's coordinating the administration's international response. Uh, Sunday's Washington Post, you may have read it, uh, suggested that the administration's international response is uncoordinated and it lacks a strategy. 
Uh, so I'd like you to uh, speak to that. And, and, and lastly, what steps is the administration planning to take to lead collective efforts to end the pandemic? For example, should we expect announcements coming out of the G7 and G20 with specific targets and goals related to health interventions? Um, thank you for those questions. Um, I would not say that the response is uncoordinated. I certainly haven't found that since I took on uh, this position just a few weeks ago. Um, both the National Security Council and the domestic COVID team led by Jeff Zients uh, lead the across-the-board interagency effort uh, in the big picture. And that, as my colleague has said, has been exactly what we need, which is a whole-of-government response. So there is coordination at that level, particularly on the policy side. Uh, in my position, there is a coordination role with respect to colleagues at USAID and HHS, how we can pull those pieces together. I think that coordination is increasing. Uh, I have found it to be quite smooth. As is always the case in the executive branch, as we make decisions and look at doing additional things, that moves up through a decision-making process the standard operating procedure, and I think that's working quite well. So I think there is coordination. Um, I think that on the G7 and the G20 side, these are vitally important forums for galvanizing the kind of international response we want. Uh, the G7 is very focused on it, and I think we can anticipate that out of the summit uh, coming up, we will see concrete action and decisions from the G7. The G20 as well is very focused on the economic dimensions. Uh, of the pandemic, whether it is with regard to the debt service initiative that they launched earlier uh, that will likely be continued, or now their examination of the special issuance of special drawing rights from the IMF. Uh, because the economic shock of this has been felt all over the world at the macro level down to the household level. So I think you will see uh, robust responses from both, and you will see the United States leading in both cases to we'll make sure that We look forward happens. to that. Senator Risch. Well, thank you. I want to pick up where the chairman left off, uh, Ms. Smith. Um, the, uh, the National Security Memorandum, number one, which I referenced earlier, talked mm -hmm. about uh, uh, the State Department leading on developing a government-wide plan to combat COVID-19, reviewing and adjusting deployments of health and diplomatic personnel overseas, and developing a diplomatic outreach plan to engage donors, strengthen partner capacity, and mitigate the secondary impacts. Right. So your position, uh, as I read your job description, is exactly what was uh, intended uh, in the bill that uh, we introduced in the last session, myself and Senator Murphy were the main uh, sponsors, Senator uh, Portman and uh, Senator Cardin were also sponsors of that legislation. And the new one coming up, uh, hopefully, uh, with uh, the chairman, uh, will probably also uh, have a position in it with that job description, just as you are. So um, it, th that's a really good thing, because when you have that amount of money that you're throwing against the wall and you've got such a complex and overlapping set of agencies, somebody's got to lead the charge. Now, I, I heard you respond to the chairman's question saying that it was the National Security Council people that were leading. Um, but as I read uh, the National Security Memorandum 1 and what we thought would be the appropriate way to do it was the department was supposed to lead, yeah. and specifically the chair you're sitting in. 
So how do we reconcile those two? Sure. And please don't take this as, as derogatory. I just, you know, we need organ, no, no, under these cir circumstances, we need organization and coordination, as the chairman has pointed out. No, I couldn't. Excuse I couldn't. me one moment, if I may intercede. Um, I have to go to a finance committee meeting. I've asked Senator Kane to preside until I come back. So it's not that I didn't like what you had to say, so. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, no, Senator, that's a fair question. Let me, let me elaborate. Um, I, I think I would think of it as the National Security Council and the COVID team that the president established have the ability to set the framework. And the reason that I say that's important is, for example, much of what we do internationally derives from how well we're doing on the domestic front. In terms of coordinating the actual response, you're absolutely right. Uh, that would appear to be me. And I think that's an appropriate role. I think it's an important role. I think it's working very well. Um, we have the ability not only as the State Department to marshal the kinds of coalitions that we need to galvanize that international support that's so necessary, but also to work with key agencies, including USAID uh, and the Department of Health and Human Services, to make sure that we are marshaling a comprehensive strategic response. So, for example... With respect to the allocation of funding or the framework I described at the beginning, part of my task is, again, working with other agencies, but to look across that and make sure that we don't have gaps or duplications, that we're moving out as robustly as we can, and that we are providing the resources, both personnel and financial, that we have in the budget, and again, thanks to Congress, behind those objectives. So I... I I don't think there is a, a disconnect. I think the reference to the domestic COVID team and the NSC derives from the fact that, again, as the president has made clear, his first responsibility is making sure the American people are safe. He is equally and strongly committed to an international response, but it's important we've got that connectivity. I appreciate that. And I come back again to the point about there's so much money yes. and so many different agencies. You know, we hear from time to time, and it, it doesn't get, fortunately, it doesn't get uh, uh, much uh, publicity about our own agencies butting heads overseas. And I, I'm sure it, both of you, uh, having worked in this area, have heard these stories uh, before where um, when, when we were doing PEPFAR, which worked incredibly well, had difficulties with agencies going head to head, uh, and so I, it, it really needs somebody with the authority yeah. to uh, to get their arms around this. And I'm I'm glad to see you're in that position, and I hope you'll take back the message that uh, that we believe that's that's appropriately where it should be, and that the person in your position should have the authority uh, to step in where agencies are having difficulty getting along. Thank you, uh, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Rich. Uh, via, via WebEx, uh, Senator Cardin is next up. Let me thank first um, both of our witnesses for their incredible service to our country uh, during these very difficult times. It's been noted in this hearing. Yes. Can you hear me? No. Hello? Am I coming through? Hello? Now, now we can hear you. Okay, sorry about that. Uh, let me, again, let me thank both of our witnesses for their for their public service. And these are certainly very challenging times. It's been noted in this hearing that this pandemic's been challenging to the health systems of developed countries, let alone those that are more challenged. 
and I just really want to deal with how we can prepare for the next pandemic, recognizing the lessons learned from PEPFAR. I appreciate Senator Rich mentioning that. Uh, we found that when we attacked the uh, AIDS epidemic by helping countries that were extremely vulnerable, we helped build up their healthcare capacity and infrastructure that when the next pandemic came, Ebola, they were much better prepared than those countries that were not PEPFAR countries. So my question to you is, what lessons have been learned and what, how we have to assist in developing healthcare infrastructures in countries in order that they can deal with pandemics uh, rather than just dealing one by one on a specific virus? Wouldn't we be better off building up the infrastructures of countries to deal with what is likely to come? Senator, that's an excellent question, and I think there's an extraordinary foundation that the United States has helped to build in a number of countries uh, through PEPFAR, through the President's Malaria Initiative, through maternal child health and other programs at USAID, through the work of CDD, CDC, and indeed the work of NIH and other parts of the government. It's absolutely critical that we build on those. Uh, the challenges are two. One is consistency. Preventing this kind of crisis from happening again means that we've got to close all the holes in the net. So that means that we and our partners need to look at all countries in the world to see how we raise that level of, of capacity building. Second, we need to make sure that we've got sustainable financing. Uh, now, let me be very, very clear that the generosity of this Congress over almost 20 years uh, to put the United States in the position to be the world's largest donor by far to global health is absolutely welcome. In order to get to where we need to go, if you think about, for example, the global health security agenda that was launched some years ago, it made significant progress in building the capacity of countries to, pre to prevent, detect, and respond to health threats. It doesn't today have sustainable financing. It's an international effort, but it doesn't have sustainable financing. So we are looking at not only options that can be fulfilled through the provision of foreign assistance, but are there other mechanisms for financing this kind of capacity building over time? Uh, but I would absolutely agree with you, Senator. It is overwhelmingly in our interest and indeed the world's interest to take a systematic approach building on the foundations we have been able with partners to set and invest our health assistance in continuing to strengthen those health systems and build the capacity for all countries to prevent, detect, and respond. I would just respond by saying under PEPFAR, we did provide substantial resources in order to be able to complete a task of health infrastructure in the country. Yes. Some of us have visited uh, the countries that have been PEPFAR countries, and we see a, a tremendous difference from those that were not PEPFAR countries. The second point I would just want to raise is that we don't yet know the secondary impact of COVID-19. Uh, and that could very well uh, present challenges to us as we look at our uh, international assistance as to how we deal with the secondary impacts that have occurred as a result of COVID-19 in particularly the developing world. So uh, these challenges are going to be continuing. I agree with you on a funding flow. We have to provide the funding. We also have to energize our partners uh, in coordination. We did that with PEPFAR. We also did it with the Sustainable Development Goals under the United Nations, which I think is another model that we can use uh, in order to make consequential differences in countries and have them prepared 
to deal with the uncertainty of the future. And, and Senator, thank you for, for highlighting the secondary impacts. I think what we're, what we're seeing in USAID is that this pandemic is touching every part of everything that we do, regardless of whether or not that is health-related. Uh, you know, so one example that has been that, you know, that, that uh, I have seen is the way that the health crisis translates into an education crisis because of a financial crisis. So the health crisis hurts uh, economies in the developing world. That puts financial pressure on household livelihoods. That means they cannot afford school fees and they need to put children to work so the children are pulled out of school. So these crises cascade and link to each other. It starts with the virus, but it manifests in multiple other ways. And we're, we're trying to tackle that through our programming as well. Let me again thank the witnesses. And thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Uh, next, and we're moving in order of uh, appearance and seniority, Senator Barrasso. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, the World Health Organization, in my opinion, needs to be reformed. The coronavirus pandemic brought to light serious questions about the World Health Organization's transparency, independence, and ability to address the global pandemic. The United States, I believe, has to be much more clear-eyed about the World Health Organization's leadership failures and mistakes if we're ever going to ensure that it'll never happen again. So May 24th, the World Health Assembly is meeting. It's an opportunity for us to raise concerns and demand reforms. Of course, the World Health Assembly is the decision-making body of the World Health Organization. So I believe reforms are needed to ensure the accurate and transparent information sharing to members. Changes need to be made in order to address the vulnerabilities of misinformation and political influence. Uh, for the WHO to be successful in the future, it must earn back the trust of the international community and perform much better than it did during this crisis. So could someone please outline for me the specific reforms this administration is demanding from the, well, the World Health Organization? Um, yes, I'll take a start at that. Thank you, Senator, for the question. And I think we're in strong agreement uh, that for the present and for the future, we need a very strong, very effective, very capable World Health Organization. We are engaged on three areas of reform, and as I said earlier, I think this is also about modernization, uh, to make sure, again, that the WHO is fit for purpose in the future. Uh, the first is on surveillance and alert. Um, those systems need improvement if we are to be able to move as quickly as we need to move. The second is in the area of transparency, which you mentioned, which is absolutely vital. Again, when we can see what is happening with the virus, we are much better positioned to track it, but also the capacity of WHO and its members to quickly respond. And this includes strengthening the international health, health regulations and compliance with them. Because while we need to strengthen the institution, the WHO is also as strong as its members. So we feel very, very strongly, and we are urging members across the board that they need to not only comply with, but strengthen the IHRs, support the kind of transparency to which you reference, and so on. And the third area is cost effectiveness and sustainability. Um, this is a very expensive pandemic. We need to be well prepared for those things that may happen in the future. We've got to make sure that money is spent wisely and effectively and achieves results so that we can sustain those capabilities over time. And along those, those lines, you had earlier in your testimony you yeah. used the word leverage, and I'm wondering yes. what leverage we now have to make the kind of changes that you've just outlined. I think, I think that we've got significant leverage and significant influence. The United States is an absolutely critical partner to WHO. Uh, I think that the WHO itself would say there are reforms that are in need of making. I think that the institution itself has spoken to those. And I think we are finding with countries around the world 
that there are some things in WHO that have worked well, and there's some that have worked less well. We have had the most dramatic global scare you could imagine with this pandemic, and I think it's taught us all a lot. So, yes, I think we're in a very good position to influence uh, WHO, but also influence other members, including on their behavior, but also on uh, their role vis-a-vis supporting the institution. Yeah, I was one that felt by withholding money from the World Health Organization, we'd have more leverage that they would then want the money. So we, that's, that's, my, that's where I've been coming from. You know, the, yeah. the American Rescue Plan provided a total of $3.5 billion in emergency funding for the Global Fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, malaria. Uh, to me, this is a dramatic commitment by U.S. taxpayers and our resources. Uh, as the largest contributor of the Global Fund, the U.S. provided over a billion and a half dollars fiscal year 2020. What specific steps has the administration taken to leverage these funds in order to raise contributions from other donors? You had said we have, we're using our leverage. What are we doing specifically? Um, Thanks for asking this. And the Global Fund has been absolutely key on another key element. Vaccines are important, but we also need the diagnostics and the therapeutics to to make all of this work. Um, You may be aware, sir, that one of the things that we did years ago was establish basically a match where we had agreed that the United States, this was in before the pandemic, so I want to be clear this hasn't pertained to this funding, but that the U.S. would cover a substantial portion portion of the global fund financing, and we would essentially use that to match and leverage contributions from other countries. I think we're still in a position to do that. We are actively... Uh, on funding for the Global Fund, reaching out to other donors constantly to make sure that it's capitalized in the way it needs to be. I will tell you quite honestly that for those of us who are doing this work, it is very effective when we can say our Congress just put billions of dollars on the table. And now I'm running out of time. I do want yeah. looking across to Senator Kane and uh, Senator yes. Kunz is here, people that I've traveled to Africa with, our concerns with HIV, tuberculosis, malaria. Uh-huh. There have been articles written that the pandemic itself, coronavirus, is going to push back opportunities mm-hmm. to make the kind of progress we have been making Absolutely. in those other areas. Could you just address that briefly? Yeah, I think, um, as Jeremy has said, this pandemic's got knock-on effects on every single thing we do. And what we've seen on the HIV-AIDS side, we've seen a decrease in testing. It's harder for people to get their medicines. We've seen reductions in voluntary male circumcision, which is key for prevention. Uh, PEPFAR and, indeed, the Global Fund have tried to pivot to compensate for some of those potential losses. How do we make it easier for people to access ARVs? How do we do the extra work to make sure that people can safely travel to undertake prevention and other measures? Um, So there's a real focus on it. But you are absolutely right, sir, that this pandemic is potent enough uh, that not only are we seeing the first increase in extreme poverty worldwide in 20 years, we are also likely to see some setbacks on the HIV and AIDS front. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you, sir. With the thanks of the chair, Senator Kane is recognized. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and what, what an important hearing, and I'm glad to have these witnesses before us. Um, I think one of the challenges that we often deal with um, across government is the U.S. wants to do everything, but we don't want to fund everything, and so we fund part of everything, and then we spread it so thin that we can't make the kind of impact that we want. And I think when it comes to vaccine diplomacy, we have some significant and hard decisions to make about prioritization. I'd like to enter into the record of an article from the Miami Herald dated April 27, 2021. The title of it is, As Biden Rolls Out U.S. Vaccine Diplomacy, He Needs to Start in Our Own Hemisphere. Uh, I'd like to enter that into the record. Without objection. Let me just read a, a, a 
paragraph from this that is uh, two paragraphs that are troubling. Since the COVID-19 outbreak, the presence of China and Russia in Latin America and the Caribbean has expanded significantly. A few months into the pandemic, China capitalized on the moment to announce a $1 billion loan to the region to facilitate vaccine access. Today, through three of its domestically developed vaccines, Sinovac, Sinopharm, and CanSino, uh, China's vaccine diplomacy extends to a dozen countries in the region. Argentina, Bolivia, Brazil, Honduras, Mexico, Panama, and Venezuela are using Russia's Sputnik V vaccine. In a regional first, Argentina is on the cusp of beginning its own mass production of the Russian-made vaccine. And their diplomatic gestures do not go unnoticed. Mexican President Andre Manuel López Obrador and Argentina's Alberto Fernández are just two of the region's leaders who have publicly thanked China and Russia for their help. The U.S. has made a commitment with about 60 million vaccines to focus on other countries, and I think it's committed 4 million of those vaccines to Mexico, I think 2.7 million to Mexico, and 1.3 million to Canada. But my worry is with China and Russia investing so heavily in vaccine diplomacy in the U.S., uh, if we are not going into the Bolivias and Argentinas and Hondurases and other nations, um, this is going to be a very, very serious challenge for us. And so I, I guess I would like to ask you in particular, what will the administration do or what might you recommend they do to prioritize uh, vaccinations in the Americas? Some of the likely travel patterns back and forth are more likely to be intense from the Americas to the United States because so many folks in the region have family members living here. I think there, I think there would be a lot of um, kind of objective data that would suggest a prioritization of this hemisphere. Two of our top three trade partners in the world are in the region. But talk to me about how we should prioritize the Americas as we look at our vaccine diplomacy efforts. Is my microphone on? Yeah, you're on. Actually, this microphone needs a new button. Now? I'm going to leave it on and not say anything indiscreet. Uh, Senator, I think we need to do three things at the same time. Um, I think there is absolute merit in making the case uh, about our own hemisphere. It affects the United States directly. Uh, and the activities of Russia and China... Uh, I would have to describe as robust but very cynical. And so I think we need to take a look at that and figure out how to respond. One thing I would say is that one of the ways to respond is to make clear that the United States sees vaccines as tools for ending a pandemic and not as tools to twist people's arms or try to secure political influence. I think the second thing we've got to do, though, is also at the same time look globally. Uh, because as we've seen in India, as we look at surges in other areas, and given mobility today, and the Indian variant is in multiple countries already, and we're going to face that constant cycle of surges in the transmissibility of new variants. We've got to be focused on particular areas, uh, but we've also got to be focused on how do we lead the effort to start to get the global coverage we need. The third thing is on supply, which is why we've got such a focus on how can we increase supply. Um, as we are considering the allocation of the AZ doses and other things we may do on that front, uh, we are taking a look at geography, uh, absolutely, while we also try to keep an eye on how do we make sure we're starting to get that global coverage that's needed to seal it up. 
let, let me just say this in my last 20 seconds. Um, I, I just, there's just this danger of if, every, if everybody's somebody, then nobody's anybody. I mean, if we're going to prioritize the entire globe, we may not make the kind of impact we want. Uh, ranking member, in your opening comments, you talked about how we might brand what we are doing. I think yeah. we might contemplate a little bit of a hybrid model where the U.S. is a significant investor in organizations like COVAX that are doing vaccinations globally, but that we might choose more of a unilateral effort to go big in a part of the world that is most likely to impact the U.S. population sure. because of migration and trade. Okay. Could we add two quick things? Um, I'll leave it to the chairman because I'm over Mr. my time. Chair? Um, I, I think one thing, and, and maybe you can take the issue on the uh, the branding. I think part, Senator, of the mission of getting the global coverage is using our leadership to also leverage other countries, right? Because other countries around the world are looking in their own uh, regions, maybe focused on other areas. We've got to make sure that together we've start, we start to have, lay that global foundation. Uh, but I can assure you there's a lot of attention to our own hemisphere, so that's very much on people's on people's minds. And Let me just echo uh, uh, Senator Kane's remarks. Uh, of course, we, we want to be helpful everywhere in the world uh, as much as we can. But uh, here in our own hemisphere, uh, it is in our own most direct uh, national interest, uh, be economic. I just left the, the Finance Committee on Trade-Related Issues with Central America, uh, DR-CAFTA, um, with the refugee, those seeking refuge from their countries. Um, you know, I, I, I could just go on and on. So there's yeah. a lot to be said as we are prioritizing where we can make a big difference, both in a health context and also in terms of uh, diplomatic advancements on critical issues that, that we need. So I appreciate the senator raising that. Senator Rounds is with us, I understand, on WebEx. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I, I presume I'm up and operational now. Uh, let me begin by thanking both of our witnesses here today. I think this has been a very interesting discussion so far, and I'd like to continue it in, uh, along the lines of, of what Senator Kane had indicated as to how we focus long-term, or at least with regard to the worldwide response. It's not the first time that our country's been expected to respond in times of an emergency or of serious economic crisis throughout the rest of the world. Uh, we think back even to World War II and the aftermath of World War II where we created a Marshall Plan. But we planned it out, we laid it out, and then in conjunction with other allies, we were able to coordinate our efforts. Is it time for a Marshall Plan when it comes to our response or our allies and those in need across the entire globe? Is it time to take a look at that type of a comprehensive plan? Uh, and I just ask both of you uh, in terms of your thoughts about the focus now and whether or not we find ourselves in a position of leading a global effort that uh, not only would, would, would take care of a lot of human suffering but and limit human suffering, but would also bring us into that leadership position with regards uh, to our allies who need uh, that type of long-term leadership focus uh, going forward? Um, I'll start, uh, but I'm sure my colleague Jeremy will have something to add to that. There's no question but that we need a grand plan and that the United States needs to be at the forefront of that. 
Frankly, I think that's the difference between bringing this pandemic to an end in three or four years and bringing it to an end in a year, 18 months, two years. And that's a big difference. We know what that means for economic stability, for political stability, and for the lives and livelihoods of millions, and indeed the security of the United States and our own citizens. So yes, we do need that kind of grand plan. I think that in our discussions with allies, we were asked about the G7 and the G20. I think that kind of uh, unity and coalition is forging. I think to do that, we're going to have to, as the Marshall Plan did, focus on multiple fronts. The Marshall Plan was indeed about resources. It was also about policies. It was also about markets and dealing with the economic impacts uh, of World War II. And similarly, we've got the same kinds of impacts in this pandemic. Uh, I think it is worth thinking that boldly. I think this is a different time, but I'm also confident that uh, unless we all come together with a bold, financed vision, prepared to take some risks and do some new things, we're going to suffer two consequences. This will last longer than need be, and we will be less prepared for what we face in the future. If I could just build on that, I think that that is also a key difference um, in picking up on Senator Kane's earlier point. That's a key difference between what we're trying to do and what we see China and Russia trying to do. What we see China and Russia trying to do is, in effect, use small amounts of vaccine uh, sales to extract political concessions and, and gain political influence. What we want to do is use a mass response uh, to end the pandemic and let that be the legacy of what America is trying to do here not extracting small-scale political concessions with arm-twisting for vaccine sales that they then, frankly, are often failing to deliver on. Um, so we, want to deli- we, 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 will, we will deliver on what we promise and what the president aspires to do and what the president is com- committed to leading is of the ambition of ending the global pandemic. And I think that, that is the, whether that's the Marshall Plan or whatever we call that, that's the legacy that we want for this administration and for American leadership in this crisis. Thank you very much for your responses. I- Look, I, I guess the way I look at it is, is if, if we do what's right in this particular case, and if we lead from the moral high ground, which is not only good business in this case, economically, it means that we respond quicker, uh, our trade patterns return, we find perhaps more interest in our, uh, in our allies uh, responding and recognizing that, that um, uh, uh, there is a benefit in working with people that have the same common belief systems as 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 we do, and that's what we're looking for around the world. Uh, it puts us in a better position long term, and at the same time, back here at home, we don't suffer the mutations and changes that are going to come back to haunt us yeah. uh, if, if we don't get this pandemic under control in, in, in other areas of the world. So I think it's a win-win all the way around, and Mr. Chairman, I'm not sure, but I suspect my time is real close to being expired. I thank you, and, and I thank our two witnesses for participating today. Thank, thank you. you, Senator Round. Senator Coons. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member Risch. Uh, thank you for holding this hearing and for um, the encouraging uh, effort you're making together to develop a bill that will um, guarantee uh, we, we learn from this pandemic and strengthen uh, global public health systems. And thank you uh, to Ms. Smith, Mr. Conduct. Great to be with you both again. Uh, Gail and Jeremy, you're um, previous experiences um, in very challenging uh, moments, such as the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, give me confidence that you are just the right people to be leading um, these critical response efforts. And to just follow up on what Senator Rounds was saying, 
Um, this is a critical moment for us uh, to seize this opening, to re-engage with the world. Um, we've got the experience. We've got the deserved reputation as a global public health leader. Um, we invested in, innovated, and developed the most effective vaccines in the world. Uh, and our global competitor, China, is uh, busy sending out a vaccine that's been demonstrated to have a significantly lower efficacy. Our global competitor, Russia, is engaging in a disinformation campaign to dissuade folks in Central America, South America, and elsewhere uh, from using uh, U.S.-delivered and developed vaccines. And I'm interested in talking with you about um, how we ramp up vaccine manufacturing, both here in the United States and throughout the world, how we ensure it's delivered in as timely and equitable way as possible, and then how we push back uh, on the disinformation campaigns. We really can only talk about the possibility of the pandemic ever ending um, if we get to a point where it is not mutating and we don't have new variants still developing as this disturbing new variant in India has that are more transmissive and more lethal. So let me start with, um, you mentioned Gail plans um, that DFCs announced for expanding manufacturing capacity. Um, you know, rather than getting into IP issues, I think the priority issue for us ought to be dealing with manufacturing and distribution around the world. Um, I, I am encouraged that South Africa's Aspen Pharmacare Manufacturing Plant is getting up and running, that the DFC is working with South Korea on a new manufacturing line. Just tell me about our plans to work with critical allies like the Quad, our four key partners in the Indo-Pacific, um, to tackle uh, research and production hubs and to rapidly grow the capacity of the global south to manufacture and distribute. Is it on now? Yep. All right. Um, what I was just saying is that I think that's important for the present and for the future because we need to have more decentralized vaccine manufacture around the world to deal with global outbreaks, epidemics, or pandemics. Um, there are a couple things we're exploring. One is you rightly refer to DFC uh, reaching out to those places where an injection of capital would yield uh, significant increases actually in the near to medium term. Now, one of the ways we can do that with allies is that all of our G7 partners, for example, have the equivalent of a development finance institution. In the aggregate, that's a great deal of capital. Also working with the IFC with whom we are engaged, uh, we can marshal uh, a lot of capital to get those ramp-ups fairly quickly. So that's number one. I think number two, it's also making sure that even the domestic market and other markets are getting the signal that they need to receive that there's capital out there to actually buy vaccines. Uh, COVAX is looking to buy vaccines. Uh, the African Union, as you may know, is working with a $2 billion line of credit. The Asian Development Bank has capital available for its members to buy vaccines, as does the World Bank. Those are disaggregated signals to the market at this point. Uh, one of the things we are trying to do is make sure that that is a very clear and loud signal that it is not simply dose sharing or just COVAX. There's money out there to procure, and how do we make sure that we're increasing supply to meet that demand? So that is uh, a second piece of it. 
I'd be interested in hearing from both of you. How can we most effectively counter disinformation campaigns? Yeah. I've been really troubled to hear that uh, Russia is actively engaging in a disinformation campaign to suggest that somehow American sourced vaccines are less effective um, than Sputnik. Yeah. Do you want to start? Yeah, I'll start that. You know, I wouldn't oversell the effectiveness of those campaigns, to be honest. Um, I think everything that we're hearing from every country where USAID works, and frankly, every country where the U.S. has a presence, is that they prefer and want to res- and want to obtain U.S.-produced and, and, and Western-produced vaccines because they recognize the higher quality. You know, the Russian vaccines have not gone through any sort of approval process or authorization process at WHO or from any stringent regulatory authority. Countries know that. They know that ours have. And that, I think, by sticking to that science um, and, uh, you know, that will be recognized, that puts them out front. Uh, countries recognize that they want those vaccines. I don't think, um, uh, I don't, I don't think they're, win- they're fighting a winning battle when they can't put their own vaccine through uh, authorization and have it come out the other end. Well, let me just commend the administration. We're at, the, at a point of having 110 million or more Americans vaccinated. Um, we're going to continue vaccinating Americans at the rate of 2 million a day or so and keep pushing on equity and access here. But we have to also now dramatically ramp up um, the availability of vaccines around the world. I'm excited to keep working with you on this challenge. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Let me ask, is there a written plan uh, at this stage saying what our priorities are country by country? Who's getting what PPE? Uh, who's getting what vaccine, uh, what additional funding might be necessary to, to meet our objectives. Is that, has that been written and established at this stage? Um, Senator, there's a written and established framework that we're in the, pos- we're in the process of finalizing, which goes into great detail. Uh, we have the documentation. I will speak to uh, let USAID speak for this. Given the new allocations of funding, is that is allocated around the world. Uh, on your your other piece in terms of where the vaccines are going, we're working closely with COVAX on the allocations of vaccines uh, which our funding has provided. And obviously on the AZ and any other doses we might share, we will be able to. So, so the decision that, that, that uh, Senator Kane raised about we need to provide additional support for Latin America, is that part of a document where we've laid out this is, this is how much we're going to send to Latin America, this is how much is going to be going to India? Have, do we, have we described? Yeah, it's in, in terms of how we allocate the AstraZeneca doses, for example, uh, their deliberation. I'm talking about all of them, the PPE, each vaccine. I mean, because I mean, it's apparent that China and Russia have a game plan. They've decided where they're going to send. I mean, they've moved. They've acted. Right. They're getting uh, various uh, approvals that, that they want to receive. Do we have the same thing in place, uh, or, or are we still on the process of well, deciding what we're going to do? Let me try and answer that two ways. Um, one way is we've got a great deal of that. We are still making decisions. We will finalize a decision on the AZ doses soon, and those will be prioritized, and you will be able to see where those are going. Uh, we've got a similar uh, discussion ongoing with COVAX so that we do have some influence on where those doses go. Uh, similarly, again, on things like PPE and other assistance. I, I think the distinction I would make between the United States and Russia and China on this is that, again, while we do prioritize and will prioritize, and I think your comments were very well received on this, uh, we are also sending a signal that we are not allocating PPE Uh, as a tool for trying to gain influence. We're allocating PPE so that we can help countries prepare, for example, for the kind of surge we've seen in India. I I just, I guess I'm a a little uh, 
concerned as I've been listening to these uh, discussions so far that that we're discussing, we're planning, we're prioritizing, uh, we're inter- interacting with others. I, I mean, the president's put forward over six trillion dollars of of legislation bills uh, in his first hundred days, and yet and yet with regards to this global crisis, we're still planning and trying to prioritize. No, and, yeah. and I. I, it would strike me that, that the administration ought to be able to put forward a very clear plan as here's what we're doing, here's what our objectives are, here's phase one, here's phase two, here's phase three, here are the countries we're going to first, and the world would know what those things are. Sure. But at this stage, we're, we're all here listening and frankly wondering, why can't we move as quickly as Russia and China to decide precisely what we want to do, where we want to do it, and communicate that to the world? Senator, we've got that framework, and... I- Respectfully, where, we've where, not been where, asked where is it? Because Senator Kane just asked what's happening in Latin America. Can we not know? I mean, do the people in Latin America, country by country, know what's coming to them, when it's coming, what our priorities are? In some cases, yes. In other cases, we are in the process of allocating the funding that was provided by Congress. And... Yeah, yes, I, we can walk in through the details of where that is going. I think it would be helpful to, ha- to have sure. that have that available to the not only Congress but to the American people and the people of the world as to what our priorities are and, and for us to have certain pri- objectives that we may not communicate but to have that uh, understood uh, in this body. Let me turn to a different topic, and that, that's with regards to the president's decision or, or a, a tentative approval to waive patents w- with regards to vaccines. Um, I, I don't know that that's happened in the past. It does strike me that the pharmaceutical companies have in the past tailored the prices of their products to the the ability of a market to pay, if you will. So they don't charge the same price uh, for statin drugs in Africa that they do in France, that they do in the United States. Uh, and we sometimes complain about that. But the reality is they've adjusted that way. Is there some reason to believe that they would not be willing to do that with regards to the sale of their vaccines uh, and that we wouldn't have to blow through uh, patents and set a precedent that could affect their willingness to make investments in the future? Um, We would certainly hope that they would do that. The negotiations of various countries have been based on variable prices uh, is what we know to date. So that has been a bit of a challenge. Uh, And I think just to be very clear on the position on the TRIPS waiver, the intention there is is not to abandon a commitment to IP. The commitment to IP is very, very strong. This is a once-in-a-century crisis. Uh, one of the things we know, for example, that on average it takes seven years for drugs that are available in this country to make it to the world's poorest countries. Um, so often they end up at prices that are affordable, but it takes a great deal of time. What will happen now, given the position on the TRIPS waiver, is that our U.S. Trade Representative and her team will enter into tax negotiations which will take some time. Um, I think it was our view that extraordinary times require extraordinary measures, and we need to look at that. Our hope would certainly be that companies would make vaccines available at the lowest possible price so that we can do everything we can to shorten the lifespan of the pandemic. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Murphy. Uh, Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you uh, both for your willingness to speak with us today and for your work on behalf of the country and the world. Um, Let me just first associate myself with remarks made by Senator Risch earlier in the hearing regarding, um, I think, an effort that we need to undertake to clarify lines of authority uh, with respect to our work around pandemic prevention and preparedness. Um, I've spoken to Director Walensky about this, um, and the good news is that CDC is trusted all around the world. They have great relationships on the ground with public health practitioners. 
um, especially in developing nations. The bad news is that I think sometimes um, they don't always make the connections that they could uh, into the um, kind of partnership programs that we can do through USAID and state. And now that we will hopefully have more resources to do that with, um, it's more important than ever um, that as quickly as possible we're entering into these conversations with countries about how to help build up their um, public health and pandemic prevention systems. And so that, that, that clarifying line of authority uh, for countries and for countries' public health professionals, I think would be incredibly important. Um, two questions, uh, one a general one and one a country-specific one. The general one is on a reference that President Biden made in his national security referendum to a new health security financing mechanism. Um, and I think you've talked both a little bit about this already, but um, I'm a believer, and, and I've put forward legislation to do this, um, that the MCC model, while imperfect, is um, an important one. And there is a way in which you can you know, essentially enter into agreements with countries um, whereby we'll be a significant partner with them on helping to rebuild their public health systems in exchange for commitments on reform. Um, that, to me, is a model that could work here and could, frankly, sell to the American taxpayers. Um, any more color on sort of what you're considering with respect to this new health security financing mechanism? And is some of the uh, dollars in the relief bill going to be used to seed fund that? Um, yes. And I think the way we're trying to look at that is in part what has worked and how do we come up with a financing mechanism that frankly isn't fully reliant on foreign assistance? Um, I would love a world where we could sort of guarantee that there was the capital going forward in a budget on the foreign assistance side to fund this kind of work years into the future. Now, we have seen that with things like PEPFAR. There has been sustained funding over the years. I think we need that kind of sustained funding on the foreign assistance side, but to also look at other models. We are looking at uh, what may be possible on the multilateral development bank side, what may be possible uh, with respect to other revenue streams? Are there ways that we can get financing beyond just foreign assistance to sustain this? Because unfortunately, the experience of the last several years, much to our collective regret, and this is not just the United States, this is all over the world, is that that kind of funding has generally fallen by the wayside. Um, I take your point on MCC, and I think one of the great advantages that we have is that we've got an awful lot of examples in our own government. We're looking at all of those. We'd also welcome any additional recommendations you all have on this. Let me ask a country-specific question. Uh, in my state, I've got a big uh, Nepalese-American population. Um, this is a country that obviously is already significantly impacted by uh, an upsurge in COVID-19 cases, but um, particularly because of the export ban in India and their inability to get medical supplies like ICU beds and oxygen and ventilators in from Indian suppliers, um, uh, that country is in dire straits. I know that USAID has already allocated about $10 million. That is obviously a relative drop in the bucket. Um, what else can we be doing um, to make sure that uh, Nepal is not overwhelmed um, in the way that India is uh, today. Um, they're close, um, but they're not there yet. And some steps that we can take to uh, for a country um, 30 million people strong um, today would be a seemingly wise investment. Thank you, Senator. Yes. 
Uh, you're absolutely right. We are we are very focused on Nepal right now. In fact, directly prior to coming to this meeting, I was on a call with our team in Nepal and some of our other teams in the South Asian region planning exactly what the, the sort of assistance that you're referencing. Um, so far under the pandemic, USAID has provided about $23.7 million of COVID-19 related support to Nepal, including a recent um, new allocation of $10 million to help them address the, the current surge. We are in the process of planning additional funding as well as um, as well as planning material supply deliveries. One of the challenges that Nepal has is, is under testing. So their test positivity rates are extraordinarily high. I think the average in the country is about 42%. There are parts of the country 70 to 90%. That's a sign they're not testing enough. So we are going to surge in testing support as well as other forms of support and continue to pay close attention to it. Well, thank you for your, for your focus on that endeavor. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And thank you to both of our witnesses today for being here and for your service. Uh, Senator Romney inquired a few minutes ago about um, our strategic planning for allocating PPP, vaccines, and other resources. I'd just like to make the comment that I hope that our allocation of these resources will be based on America's strategic interests. And in that regard, I was in Guatemala, Mexico last week. We have a surge of people coming across our border right now. In fact, 570,000 people have been encountered just this fiscal year. That surge is bringing in people that we don't know uh, have been vaccinated, whether they, whether they have um, COVID or not. I can tell you from meeting with the leadership in Guatemala and in Mexico, there's a dearth of vaccine, huge problems. You know the Sputnik problem down there. Yep. Um, if we're prioritizing these assets, I'd like to know our vaccines what the plan is, again, for, for Mexico, for Central America, Latin America, and South America, how are we prioritizing the allocation of vaccines to those countries given our strategic interest and the fact that in my home state of Tennessee, we have people being shipped in from across that border right now. Unaccompanied minors are being housed in my state. Hospitals don't know what to expect. The school system doesn't know what to expect. How do we address this? Um. Thank you for the question, Senator. Um, as I alluded to uh, a few moments ago, we are in the process of finalizing the decisions on the allocation of the AstraZeneca vaccines, and I think you will see a reflection uh, in those of the kind of interests and concerns that you point to. I don't want to get ahead of uh, the process or ourselves, but in the coming days we will be able to walk through that in some detail with you. Well, I would encourage uh, speed in every respect here because we have a crisis at the border right now, and we have partners south of the border that want to work with us, that are desperate to work with us. Yep. And what I don't want to see happen is creating yet another magnet for illegal immigration because they can't get the vaccines down there. This is just another reason why people are flooding across our border right now. So I would you know, very much appreciate your attention to that and your planning. Sure. And again, as, as, as soon as we have a plan, I would also concur with Senator Romney, that plan needs to be made public, not only to the Congress, but to the American people and to our allies around the world. We will be doing that. Thank you. Thank you very th much. Th thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I've got another question that I would like to turn to here. Um, this has to do with um, the quad framework. My previous position, I spent a lot of time in that region as U.S. ambassador to Japan. And I applaud the uh, Biden administration for continuing to emphasize the importance of our cooperation in the Quad. Mm -hmm. um, the Quad partnership has come together around the COVID-19 situation. Uh, 
and uh, have made significant pledges with respect to providing vaccines, over a billion doses, in fact, being pledged to, 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 the, to that region. Uh, I want to come back to the conversation about what's happening in India that uh, Senator Murphy brought up. What is the plan now that India is not able, not in the position to produce and, and deliver vaccines beyond its own border? How are we going to backfill that commitment? How are we going to address that commitment now, given what's happened in India? Yeah, do you want to start? No, yeah, no. I'm happy to thank. And, and, and Senator, that is the that is the key question right now for global vaccination. Um, a lot of the initial, because of uh, you know India's role in supplying most of the vaccines, that many of the vaccines that are produced globally and their ability to do so at low cost, much of the the global vaccination effort initially uh, was to hinge on that. Mm-hmm. That has changed now, given the situation in India. Covax is working with with U.S. support to diversify their portfolio. So they recently signed deals. Mm-hmm with Novavax and with Moderna for their vaccines. Moderna, of course, is the one that we have access to here. Novavax is one that is, uh, is forthcoming, and, and they're, ta- they're placing a bit of a bet, but I think a safe bet that that will, that, that will come through authorization uh, and be usable. That helps to diversify so that their portfolio is less reliant on India. Um, we, are also, uh, we are also working to enhance manufacturing and enhance the supply chain that feeds into manufacturing. One of the challenges that India has, and we're seeing it in other places like Brazil and in um, some of the European producers, they they just can't access sufficient supply to produce the vaccine. So their production ceilings, they're falling short of. Um, So we're working with colleagues at the White House and at HHS who track those global supply availabilities to figure out how we can better optimize which vaccines are being produced where and the allocation of some of those supplies so that we can make sure that the the greatest volumes of appropriate vaccines are are being produced. And that, I think, is the long-term play. We've we've got to get that supply chain piece right so that global production can rise to the level we're going to need. I appreciate that, and I want to bring us back to my opening comment. We need to take into account America's strategic interest as we do this. We have a massive strategic interest in that region. So I appreciate your attention and focus on that. I'm running out of time, but I would like to also ask, uh, if I could, about COVAX. You mentioned COVAX. I'd like to get an update at a separate time about how that program is functioning. When I met with leadership both in Guatemala and Mexico, there's a very deep shortfall mm-hmm. in terms of what expectations are versus what's being delivered. And if we could make arrangements to get an update on that, I would appreciate that. that. Yes, thank, you. thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, Senator uh, Merkley. Oh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I wanted to get a, a kind of a better roadmap of, of where we get to uh, internationally in the sense that uh, a group of public health advocates have said we should have a goal of producing 8 billion doses of mRNA within a year to inoculate essentially half the world and cut two years off the pandemic's projected duration. Has, is that a goal that you, you have, uh, Director, you have um, em- embraced in terms of creating an arc for American leadership? And do you feel like we have sufficient uh, resources and uh, leadership connections to drive success in that vision? Uh, so I would I would put it this way: we need um, we need enough supply of enough vaccines in the right combinations to get to the target levels. Um, I'm I'm a little less concerned with whether they are specifically an mRNA vaccine or other other or other uh, vaccine technologies, as long as they are effect, effective and can be delivered uh, safely and effectively. And I think there are merits to both. So mRNA has a really important role to play in that. Um, mRNA is also a new technology. Uh, it is harder to take to scale than some of the others. Um, 
some of the other more traditional vaccines, and, uh, and, and at least in the case of, of the Pfizer mRNA vaccine, has more difficult handling requirements. So I think we need to use all of the candidates that we have in appropriate combination to, to cover as much of the world, depending on what you know, different countries are set up to handle. So you, but you embrace, you embrace the, the, the vision of that 8 billion dose goal? Uh, I would say mRNA vaccines are, you know. Not, anybody, I'm not, yeah. I'll accept yeah, yeah. that other vaccines may well fill in, but that yeah. goal of the number of doses to try to speed up uh, global resistance. I think it is, uh, I think it is a matter of, um, without putting an 8 billion figure on it, we need as many mRNA vaccines as we can get. Um, okay, and, I'll just I'll cut yeah. you off there. Yes, sir. I'm, I, what I'd like you to explore yeah. is whether having our president in partnership with, with other leaders embrace some number, because a number puts a mm-hmm. flag in the ground. It says, this will now, now how do we get there? Yeah. Uh, how Absolutely. do we put all the pieces together to get from this day and 365 days from now, we're going to have this level. Right. And if you get to 7 billion, you get to 9 billion, but, the, but, it, but it drives, but when it's just like, we need as much as we can get, it doesn't drive a plan. I, we I, have to have a plan, yeah. and we have so much at stake in this. And I guess I'll just put this as a, a, a question. I look at this as, one, uh, the world needs to come together in this from a humanitarian, mm-hmm. from a moral perspective. Second, we need to come together because as long as there's a reservoir of disease out there, that disease is going to be reimported to the U.S. It means more Americans getting sick. It means more Americans dying. It means more opportunity for this, this uh, pandemic virus to uh, mutate and cause new problems and have to drive essentially a lot more costs in the future. Do you share, do, am I describing a, a world that, that you agree with? Absolutely. And, and what we need, I think the target figure we need to start with is how much of the world do we need to cover? And that is, you know, the pre- President Biden has said for the U.S. he wants to target 70 percent. The African Union is trying to target 60 percent. I think something in that range. And then it's a question of which vaccines will come online in which volumes to enable us to get to that um, between the mRNA and the others. But well, I look forward to announcements yep. from the administration that and I think it also puts the U.S. in a leadership role to say, say this is our partnership with the world to make this happen. We're going to do everything we, we can. And, and then it drives resources that Congress can consider uh, appropriating. But when it's vague, like, well, let's get as much as we can, that doesn't drive action in the, in the, in the same way. Completely. Uh, I'd like to turn to, to, uh, to you, Gail, um, in terms of another piece of this, which is the sharing of uh, technology. And I think the discussion has reverberated in two different ways. One, having companies share their their recipe, uh, if you will, because of the urgency, and it's tied into the first question I'm asking about how we get from here to there a year from from now and reduce the the risks to America and do the right thing globally, Uh, and also uh, the um, uh, action in terms of uh, changing the the patent restrictions that needs to go uh, through the World Trade Organization. And... Are we aggressively pursuing both of those uh, approaches? Do you support those approaches? Yeah, I I think given the urgency of the situation, we do have to do both things, uh, which is what led to the position on the TRIPS waiver. Technology transfer is another key variable, as you rightly point out, so that's going to be key, I think, for now and for into the future. Um, I would add, though, it does not solve the whole problem. As Jeremy suggested 
would not minimize, though, uh, given the technology requirements for mRNA vaccines. Uh, and I, I wouldn't minimize the importance of, say, some of the other vaccines and scaling up on those to be able to meet the need. But yes, I think we absolutely have to look at a better solution than what we have now to making vaccines available sufficiently that we don't see another global pandemic and we bring this one to an end. Absolutely. I know I'm out of time. Do I have time for a specific follow-up? Mr. Uh, I know Senator Shaheen has come back. If, if, if you want to I'll wait. I'll follow up. Thank, Please. thank you. Thank you. And, and if you're still here, Senator Mer Merkley, uh, we, we could consider going a second round. Uh, Senator Shaheen. Um, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. And um, thank you both for being here and for your testimony. I'm sorry I had to miss so much of it because we had another hearing and appropriations going on. But I wanted to ask you about some of the um, ancillary impacts of the COVID pandemic, which, as you pointed out, has tragically taken more than 3 million lives over the last year. Um, it's also created a global food security and malnutrition crisis, which you know very well. And as of April 2021, the World Food Program estimates that 296 million people in the 35 countries where it works are without sufficient food. Um, that's 111 million more than in April of 2020. So, and prior to the COVID outbreak, we were losing about 3 million children each year, dying as the result of malnutrition. Um, obviously, that number is increasing. So can you talk about how USAID and the State Department is prioritizing assistance to address malnutrition as part of our effort to combat the COVID-19 pandemic? Yes, absolutely. Thank you for that question, Senator. Um, the, the, the humanitarian and development, and particularly, as you're noting, the food security and nutrition impacts of this pandemic have been one of the most severe manifestations we've seen beyond, of course, the, the death from the virus itself. Um, the, the number of people in humanitarian need has risen by about 40% since pre-pandemic, um, and much of that is, is uh, manifesting in, in um, the food security space. So one of the first things that we did with ARP funding was expedite um, both some of the, the cash funding through the ESF and some of the Title II in-kind food aid to, um, to patch gaps in the food pipeline, the, the World Food Program uh, global food pipelines that go to humanitarian settings for exactly that reason. And we were very, very concerned about the potential for famine in multiple countries. So that, that has been an urgent priority. That money has been flowing um, already. Uh, it was the first thing, it was the first money that we got moving from the ARP after the Congress passed the bill. Uh, we're not limiting our focus there to humanitarian settings, of course, because we know that the, the food security and malnutrition impacts are also showing outside of traditional crisis settings. And, you know, in a situation like this, those kind of traditional definitions of what is and is not a crisis begin to blur as well. So through our Bureau for Resilience and Food Security, we're also providing additional support in more sort of traditional development settings. Um, to, to food security needs and to um, childhood nutrition needs as well. And uh, the resources that we have received from Congress will be very important in that. I think the last thing I would say is, you know, we will, we will do this through the ARP funding, but this is also going to be a long-term priority because the, we're going to be paying for uh, or kind of feeling the development impacts of this well beyond the point at which we end the virus. And so do we need more um, assistance, funding assistance? You know, we will. Um, I'm not going to get ahead of the White House on the funding requests, as you can understand. But I think 
you know, certainly in the out years of the budget, we're going to continue to feel the development impacts of this, and we're going to need to reflect that if we're going to fully combat this. And I missed, um, I'm sure you addressed what's happening in India in some of the questions, which is just horrific. Mm-hmm. I have heard from some of the members of the Nepalese community in New Hampshire that we're also seeing even faster rates of spread of the virus in Nepal. How are we prioritizing small countries that may not be on the front lines of the news these days, but we know are um, having the same sort of critical challenges? Yeah, I would say that um, for USAID, Nepal is our um, you know, alongside India, it's our highest priority right now. And actually, just prior to the hearing, Senator Murphy asked about this as well while you were out. Um, but I, I came from a meeting directly on how we are expediting aid to Nepal. We have been sending aid there previously. Um, we recently put another $10 million in um, just in the past few weeks, and we're currently planning additional aid deliveries of in-kind assistance um, that will be transported in, particularly on diagnostics and testing, which is a major weakness there. That's great. Um, thank you. One of the... We know that this pandemic has affected women, um, certainly in the United States and around the world, probably more dramatically than men, um, because women tend to be the caregivers in all of our societies. Can you, and one of, it's having an impact on, as you pointed out, in other aspects of healthcare systems throughout the world. One of those areas has been family planning, which has been affected because of, um, the focus on the coronavirus, we've seen family planning facilities shuttered around the world. So how can we support integrated health systems that ensure that family planning services are considered an essential service within the public health? It's, a, it's an extraordinarily important question. And as you say, the the the, the burden and the, the, the damages from this pandemic have fallen disproportionately on women and girls. Um, we have seen that in the term, in, in the form of family planning. We have seen that in the form of uh, disproportionate um, uh, caregiving obligations. Uh, more women have been pushed out of the workplace than men have. We've seen that in terms of uh, girls fa- falling out of educational opportunities. Um, we are, you know, with the with the resources that Congress has provided us, we are working to to do what we can to prioritize each of those. Um, both in uh, both with some of the ARP funding, but also with our normal year development budgets. And we've pivoted a lot of our development programs to take account of uh, the impacts of the pandemic, including some of our family planning work. And we look forward to continuing to collaborate with you, Senator, and with Congress on, on that. Well, thank you very much for all of your efforts. I know they will continue. And anything that I or my office, and I'm sure this is true of the full committee, can do to be helpful, um, please let us know. Thank you. We look forward to working with you. Thank you. I understand Senator Van Hollen is with us virtually. Senator Van Hollen. <coughs> yes. Uh, Mr. Chairman and um, Ranking Member, thank you for bringing us together on this important uh, topic. And to both our witnesses, thank you for your, your service um, and all your efforts uh, to defeat this global uh, pandemic. Uh, you know, President Biden said that the United States uh, will be the, quote, arsenal of vaccination, uh, unquote, uh, once we have sufficient guaranteed supply uh, for every American. Uh, and my sense is, uh, based on our ability now to take the AstraZeneca doses, the 60 million, that we've now secured enough uh, for the U.S. population that we can begin uh, to provide excess supply to other needy places around the world, both to do the right thing and and for our own health interests. Is that right? 
Um, I think we are nearing that time. Yes, absolutely, sir. Well, so there, there are different pieces to this yeah. uh, challenge, right? There's the money piece and, you know, Congress, as you know, provided $4 billion for COVAX. And as you indicated, having that money available is a, a good incentive to increase supply. But as of today, as I understand it, there's not $4 billion of vaccine to purchase um, and make available right away. Isn't that the case? That's the case. Um, so I think that you're absolutely right that dose sharing needs to be a fundamental part of the equation so that we've got enough of a volume to get to the levels we need, if that's, if that's the point of your question. Yeah. And so here's what I'm, I'm trying to do. And I know you're working on a plan, but everyone's trying to get their arms around the question Senator Merkley really posed, which is, which is how much and, and how much can we provide uh, in the form of actual vaccines? And, uh, you know, I'm pleased that we um, loaned the vaccine. I think it was four million doses uh, to our neighbors, uh, Canada and Mexico. I'm pleased we've identified India uh, because of their urgent need um, as a recipient of some of those uh, doses going forward. Uh, others have mentioned Nepal, I would say Bangladesh, Pakistan, all those countries that border on India uh, are real risk um, of the rapid uh, um, acceleration of, of the vaccine. So the faster we can get uh, the vaccine to India and some of those other countries, uh, the better. Um, what do you expect the timeline uh, to be here? That's question number one. And second, beyond the 60 million AstraZeneca doses, what other U.S. sort of produced doses or purchased doses do you see coming online and being made available to support yeah. others around the world in the coming weeks? Um, Senator, I'm not trying to be too clever by half. The timing of this hearing is such that, that what I need to say is that in the coming days, uh, we will have those answers for you. We're in the process of discussing all of that, uh, looking at the options and finalizing some things. So our timeline is very short and we will be able to come back to you very soon. I think we agree with you absolutely uh, that we need to move and move quickly and we are doing so. I just don't want to get ahead of things. Right. And that's on the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, distribution, right? That's on the AstraZeneca. And as you know, the president has said that when the situation in the United States, when he feels a level of confidence about where we are, that then we will begin looking at other doses. I think, as you and others have rightly pointed out, we are getting to a level in the United States where confidence is much greater. It's been a very successful rollout. Uh, so we are also looking at those options. Got it. So when you say in the next in the coming days, you should have uh, an announcement or decisions. Can we also expect that you will tell us how much beyond the 60 million in AstraZeneca vaccine may be available, whether it's Novavax or some of these others that the United States will be able to make available? Is that something that you're going to be able to tell us in the, in the next couple of days? Um, Senator, what I can tell you is I can contact you and tell you what I'll be able to tell you. I, I'm not trying <laughs> to be... Uh... Clever, I am, I'm trying to honor a system of deliberation, and so we are moving very quickly, and we will have more issue with you very soon. No, I, I get, I get a miss. I'm not trying to – I just, you know, I, again, we have the $60 million that yep. we've talked a lot about. I, I haven't heard a lot of conversation about what other vaccine supply may be made um, available. Let me ask you quickly about the ingredients, because we have the money uh, channel. Uh, we have the direct distribution of vaccines. We've purchased excess vaccines. 
Uh, and then there's the issue of providing essential ingredients to other countries that have the cap capability of doing their own manufacturing. Right. Um, I understand there's some bottlenecks uh, in that process. I know India, for example, has asked for ingredients. Um, how, how can we eliminate the bottlenecks and is the Defense Production Act a tool that we should be using more of? Yeah, I will. Thank you, Senator. It's a key issue. It's probably the key issue right now for global vaccine scale. You know, we are trying as a world to produce 14 billion extra doses of vaccine a year on a system built to produce four. And so there are these constraints in the upstream supplies and consumables. We are working closely um, with counterparts at HHS who've been supporting some of that analysis on the on the Operation Warp Speed, now the Countermeasures Acceleration Group initiative, to, to take some of that expertise, feed that into what we need to do at the global level. We're coordinating closely with groups like SEPI uh, and Gavi to feed that into some of their portfolio planning um, and their investments. But that is, that is the key issue, is um, expanding that upstream supply, but also, frankly, optimizing, because I think we're going to have to make some hard choices and trade-offs about which vaccines ultimately get, get selected for investment and, and purchase based on who can produce the most yield. Do you think we will require the, the more use of the Defense Production Act, which is something I was pleased to see the administration, the Biden administration, do yeah. um, early on with respect to domestic supply? I think we're exploring how that might work on the international level. Yeah, got it. Okay. Thank, thank you. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I understand there are no members on either side uh, of the aisle that are presently waiting. And if I'm wrong, please, if you're particularly virtually, let me know. In the absence of that, I just have one or two questions to finalize. Um, let me ask you, on January 21st, the administration issued National Security Memorandum 1, and the National Strategy for COVID-19 Response and Pandemic Preparedness, which articulated a number of important actions it would take, including promptly providing to the president, quote, recommendations for creating an enduring international catalytic financing mechanism for advancing and improving existing bilateral and multilateral approaches to global health security. As you're aware, lack of funding has been a significant constraint for lower-income countries in terms of addressing weaknesses in their ability to better prepare to prevent, respond, and detect emerging uh, infections with pandemic potential. Uh, some have suggested a mechanism at the World Bank. Others have proposed a new multilateral fund similar to the Global Fund to Fight uh, AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. Uh, can you share with us what options are currently under consideration by the administration for such a mechanism? Um, I'm happy to take that, Senator, and thanks for flagging it. Uh, upon coming into this position and, and addressing, uh, obviously, India was just breaking at that time. This has also been a priority. Um, those options are on the table. Uh, we are, again, exploring with the Treasury Department and other agencies, whether there are additional options that haven't been explored yet. Because again, if we, if we create the kind of fund that has been mentioned, whether it's like the Global Fund or Gavi, uh, whether it's a bank, uh, a window at the World Bank or another MDB, one of the things we've got to have confidence in is that there will be long-term financing. And that's dependent on the budgets of member states. Now, we have been able to do that in some cases in the past. If you look at the Global Fund, if you look at Gavi, over the years, that funding has been pretty consistently con con excuse me, maintained. 
So what we would need to do in that case is make sure that we've got an absolute commitment, not just from our own government, from, but from other governments, to maintain that funding over time. So all those models are, are on the table. What I am really focused on and we're really focused on is how do we ensure the sustainability of funding? We've had mechanisms in the past and funding was not sustained. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I would assume that uh, as we go to the G7 and G20, such a discussion would be very timely mm-hmm. uh, because um, it's not only in the United States' national interest to help uh, stem the tide of the pandemic. It's every country in the world, especially the, the, the more advanced economies, it certainly is in their interest. So I hope we will, regardless of the mechanism, yep. we will look to engage in that. Let me ask you, um, how do we plan to ensure that our bilateral aid programs are contributing to health systems strengthening while at the same time achieving outcomes in areas those programs are meant to address. I mean, one of our, one of, you know, we are looking at the immediacy, and certainly we should, but it seems to me we should be thinking, you know, whether it's USAID or any of our other various programs, how do we strengthen as part of our effort these health systems so that they can meet this and other challenges? Do you want to come on and then I'd like to add one thing when you... It's, it's an extraordinarily important point, Senator. Um, you know, we have seen in this in this pandemic, as we saw with the Ebola outbreak, that work that we had done to invest in health systems, whether that was intentionally health system strengthening work or uh, or more kind of disease targeted work, can be pivoted to other uses. Um, so, as we saw with some of the polio work that was done in Nigeria, was then pivoted to support the Ebola response there. Um, we have seen likewise in Southern Africa a lot of the work that has been done on things like lab strengthening through PEPFAR, which has been a major focus of PEPFAR, the kind of mass PCR testing that can be done now because of the HIV investments is also very useful for this. So I think there are, you know, there are ways that we can be more intentional about that going forward, both through our own bilateral work and through some of the, for example, the support to the Global Fund, um, so that we are, you know, we are building some of that work in a way that also uh, serves other purposes uh, more intentionally at the same time. Well, I look forward to seeing that, and I will talk to the administrator uh, when I speak to her uh, this week. Uh, lastly, uh, many of us have raised the question of India. Of course, their massive COVID surge is uh, an, uh, an enormous challenge. I think the administration made the right decision to expeditiously send raw vaccine materials, oxygen supplies, test kits, and other necessary resources to fund the expansion of India's vaccine manufacturing capacity. Mr. Kanandaik, what additional resources is the U.S. planning on providing to India in the coming days and weeks? Has uh, India's central government uh, or any of its state governments requested manufactured vaccines from the United States? And if they have, uh, what's our ability to fulfill that request? So, uh, so we are we are prioritizing further investments to support the oxygen supply chain in India. Um, a lot of what we've done on oxygen so far has been in a stopgap to meet immediate clinical needs in, in overstretched health facilities. But the long term, or not even the long term, the kind of the near near medium term play here is to help them expand their ability to produce and uh, and and move medical grade oxygen throughout the country. So we're doing support to that. We're providing support to that, also to the Indian Red Cross. Uh, which has been the distribution agent for a lot of the aid that's coming in and is, um, you know, is, it, it needs to expand their capacity to handle that flood of, of incoming aid. Um, on the vaccines front, 
Um, as as Gail has already said, we're in the process of determining as the administration how that initial $60 million of manufactured AstraZeneca doses will be allocated, um, and there will be more to say about that. Yeah. Now, I, I'm just add one thing, Senator, that uh, – and this will be a continued response, as Jeremy yeah. has indicated. This is not a, a short-term crisis. One of the things we've also been doing together is, as the State Department USAID is working with an extraordinarily generous – response from American citizens, but also companies in the private sector. Uh, together, we've probably worked 45, 50 crises in our lifetimes. I've never seen this kind of response from the private sector. Uh, so it's a significant amount of capital. It's a significant amount of support, logistical and otherwise, and in-kind assistance. So that's we're working with them to make sure that those contributions flow in uh, to the system in a way that can be most effective. I hope that you will uh, uh, come back to us uh, after you're ready to make your announcements so that we can get a full understanding of uh, what we're doing on vaccine distribution. Absolutely. Uh, Happy to. You. Senator Rich? Um, have, uh, I, I'm assuming both of you have, at least in a cursory fashion, looked at the Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness yep. And response that was just released, what, yesterday was it that it was released? It was Actually, I think 6 o'clock this morning. Yeah. Uh, this morning. <laughs> um, but in any event, uh, they, uh, that was a study commissioned by the WHO, and it, was, uh, it wasn't just another study. I mean, I, I, it yeah. seems to me they dug in pretty good. They, they ignored the, the uh, uh, a discussion of where this started and how it started, which – I think it was good that takes some of the issues off the table and everybody knows uh, what, what the answers to those questions are. But, but most importantly, I think, first of all, it was, it was done by, it was led by a former head of state of New Zealand and, and of Liberia, certainly not people that you could claim were uh, involved in the global politics of the day, uh, if you would. So I, I think this has got uh, some real credibility. And they... They have some suggestions in here that I think are, are new. I mean, we've all been talking about WHO reform, but this, this uh, study has very specifics in it for creation of a fund, an international pandemic financing facility. But most importantly, that, uh, that the heads, they, they suggest that the heads of the governments of the world set up a global health threats council yeah. and a pandemic framework convention, I guess what we'd call a treaty. Uh, uh, to me, these things are critical, and uh, I, I hope this uh, I hope this gains some legs and gets some traction. I would assume this would be on the agenda when the uh, when the uh, later this month when this meeting takes place. I, oh, this ahead. is a vital report, Senator. And yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. It's what I said. This is an absolutely vital report uh, that we've been looking forward to. We're reviewing the recommendations now. Uh, in fact, I'm co-hosting a meeting with several other countries on financing for global health security, and part of that meeting will be reviewing the IPPR recommendations on that. Um, <clears throat> so we think it's critical. Their, their proposal for a global health security forum is a very intriguing one. I think one of the things we found is that we've got health ministers. You also need officials that deal with security issues because this is a global health and a security crisis. So we would agree with you. It's a really, really important report by some very smart people, and we're going to go through all the recommendations. Well, that's good. I, I think these are the kinds of things we were looking for and actually, I guess, uh, groping for to try to come up with specific solutions uh, when all of us, the chairman, myself, uh, 
uh, Senator Murphy and the others on the committee were have been attempting to create this legislation to move forward. So I, I'm glad that uh, this happened now before we got too far down the road with ours because it seems to me that if people can come together on this, uh, and, and, and it is certainly not political by any stretch of the imagination. So I, I think this is a uh, uh, something that will be very beneficial to us as we move forward to, with our legislation. Senator Risch, if I may, I, one, yes, one thing I would put some from their report and something that you mentioned in your, your opening remarks is the need for enhanced early warning. So that is something that is cited in the, in the uh, IPPPR report. It's something that we're working on. Uh, within the USG, envisioning how that might look. You know, it is striking that for famines, for hurricanes, for things like this, we have very robust, very sophisticated, yeah. scientifically um, kind of grounded early warning systems. And then when it comes time to predict a pandemic, you have a sort of binary on-off of the public health emergency of international concern mechanism. So that's an area that I think there's a lot of consensus needs to be strengthened. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, of course, that's that's one thing that we've all been focused on. And one of the difficulties is when you have – something like a weather event, you can't really argue with it. But uh, when you get into something like where did this start, there is a natural reluctance for a government or a country to uh, drag its feet and try to find, hopefully find a, a, another answer. Uh, we don't wind up with that problem in the U.S. as much as other countries because we have a robust and open media here and uh, and a population that uh, isn't afraid to criticize or point the finger or, or raise the alarm, sometimes uh, overly uh, much so. But uh, in any event, uh, this is something that's really desperately needed so that we do have that early warning, that, that fire alarm. Need, when the fire alarm goes off, there needs to be a fire department to mm -hmm. respond. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Um, well, you, we appreciate your testimony uh, and your insights. Uh, you have probably one of the most important missions uh, of our time, uh, so uh, we appreciate uh, your work. Uh, the record of this hearing will remain open to the close of business tomorrow. And with the thanks of the committee, this hearing is adjourned.